I turn to Romans chapter 9. We're going to be going there. Just an announcement. The baptism is scheduled August 1st. And one reason we're waiting that long now is, uh, for one, we have to wait for men of faith who are going to set up the baptistry right here in front of me. They're going to set it up as they did the once before. And we're going to have baptism. But also, um, Lily Farrell and Caleb are both being baptized. And the grandparents are going to be able to come into town. And we have, I believe, two others getting baptized. Um, Connor back there. And maybe my daughter, Abigail, but we're, that's to be determined yet. If, again, August 1st is just over a month away, so if you've not talked to me and you want to get baptized, a believer's baptism, certainly talk to me. Also, I want to share, we're in Romans 9 today, but next week is July 4th, and July 4th is a Sunday. And I'm going to be talking about God's providence in America's history. God's providence in America's history. And I'm going to share many different things about that. In my Sunday school class, we've been going through... Um, at 2 o'clock, we have a small group called the Truth Project. The Truth Project, which is all about a biblical worldview. And Lesson 10 is about the American experiment. And I'm going to play that at Sunday school. It is really good. Even if you don't usually come to Sunday school, you should come that day. And, uh, and I think you would be really, really encouraged by it. So, anyways, without further ado, Romans chapter 9. If you're following around in the notes, I'm going to be skipping a lot today. Just so you know, fair warning. So... Martin Luther once shared, My conscience has been taken captive by the word of God. And to go against conscience or scripture is neither right nor safe. As many of you may know, the scriptures were the real hero of the Reformation. The Bible was the real hero of the Reformation. And they had the Bible at that point in Greek. And Martin Luther knew the Greek. And he was able to look at things, passages where the Catholic Church at that point had translated it from the Latin as we have to do penance. We have to do penance. And Martin Luther looked at things. Actually, it wasn't Martin Luther. It was a Greek, a Greek scholar who did the translation. I might think of his name in a minute. They looked at things and they realized, no, this is about grace. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not about doing penance. It's about grace. And so Martin Luther wrote, did his 95 thesis, nailed it to the castle doors at Wittenberg, Germany. It's spelled Wittenberg, but it's really Wittenberg. And he did that, which was really gutsy. And he goes, he goes before this tribunal, and they wanted him to recant. And at that, I, 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 really, and I really picture him having a microphone and doing a mic drop. You know how they do the mic drops. I really, I, I have this image in my head that he said, here I stand, I can do no other. And he dropped the mic and walked away. And uh, then he was kidnapped, but it really wasn't a kidnapping. They, they, they really rescued him and they disguised him and put him in a castle. But he, during that trial, which I think was at Worms, pronounced Verms, he says, my conscience has been taken captive by the word of God. And to go against conscience or scripture is neither right nor safe. It's not right and it's not safe to go against conscience or scripture, as Martin Luther shared. And we come to a passage in Romans right here in which the Apostle Paul shares his heart for his people. From the very beginning, he references that he's telling the truth. And you know what he references? He says his conscience, he references his conscience and the Holy Spirit as his witness. In Romans 9, verse 1, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. It makes me wonder if Martin Luther might have read Romans a few times. Actually, Romans was one of the heroes of the Reformation. And Paul right here is saying, I can't go against my conscience. The Holy Spirit is my witness. 
My theme today is that we see Paul's passion that his people would be saved. And we see all of the spiritual benefits the Israelites were blessed with. We're going to see in Romans chapter 9, he gets into the hot topic of what are, what, what, what's going on with the Jewish people. The Jewish people at that point had rejected the Messiah. Now, right now, there are mass uh, conversions of Jewish people going on. And, and there have been studies done prior to the Holocaust. There were great revival in, revivals in Jewish groups in that area, in the area around Germany, Poland, Switzerland, Sweet, those areas. Great revival. So a lot of Jewish people are being saved. But in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul's dealing with the subject of, of his ethnic group, of the Jewish people, of Israel. What, what about them? And we're going to see Paul's passion that his people would be saved. And we see all of the spiritual benefits the Israelites were blessed with. We're going to see something like nine spiritual benefits the Israelites were blessed with. So my application, as we, as we go through this sermon, think about this. Do we care about people's salvation? Paul wanted, he desperately wanted... His ethnic group to be saved. He desperately wanted the Jewish people to be saved. Do we care that our people group, it could be the Americans you live, you live next door to, or your family members, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, do we care that they're saved? I would bargain that most of us don't. We might say that we do, but we're not praying for opportunities to talk about Jesus with them. We'd much rather talk about football or baseball or basketball. I have the belief that most supposed evangelical Christians say they believe in heaven and say they believe in hell, but they really don't. They don't live for the kingdom of heaven and they don't live with the reality of hell. If push comes to shove, they might even... Go into universalism, which you can't make that case biblically. Do we care about people's salvation? So let's look at verses 1 through 3, Paul's grief over Israel. This is a lament. Verses, these, these verses, verses 1 through 5, are a lament. A lament. The apostle is so burdened over Israel's unbelief that he is willing, Paul says he is willing to suffer eternal damnation if that would help them come to Christ. He is willing to suffer eternal damnation, to go to hell himself so that his people, the Israelites, his brethren, his ethnic group to be, would be saved. Wow. Now he's talking a little bit of hyperbole, but how much do we care about people's salvation? Now I'm going to go through a little bit to introduce this section. Notice that this is coming right after Romans 8. Romans chapter 8 was all about the Holy Spirit. If you've been here for the sermon on Ro the sermons on Romans 8, you've all been very encouraged. You've been happy with me when you walked out the door. And I don't know if you will be today or the next few weeks, you know. But my job is to declare the truth. In Romans 8, the Holy Spirit is, is mentioned something like 19 times. In Romans 8, it shows that if we are saved, we have the Holy Spirit, verse 9. In Romans 8... It was about how we can cry out, Abba, Father, which is Daddy, Daddy, verse 15. Romans 8 was all about how we have the privileges of adoption, verses 16 and 17. If we are in Christ, we are adopted into God's family. We have the privileges of adoption. Romans 8 was about how if God is for us, who can be against us, verse 31. Romans 8 was about how our present suffering does not compare to our eternal glory, verse 18. Think about that. Our, our present suffering that we go through 
through this side of eternity does not compare to our, to our eternal glory. Verse 18. Romans 8 was about how God did not spare his own son. And that shows that he will graciously provide for us all things. Verse 32. Romans 8 was about how nothing... Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Verses 38 and 39. And we talked about that two weeks ago. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And, and that's Romans 8. And, and, and Paul builds it up to like a crescendo at the end of Romans 8. And then Paul said, chapter 9, we're going to transition. Now, he really didn't because there really weren't chapters and verses. But he did make quite a transition as we get to chapter 9. Romans 9 begins to deal with Israel. Paul will write about Israel from Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 11. And some think that these chapters deal with Israel, but also individual election, as well as individual reprobation. In other words, some think that Romans 9 is about Israel, but also how God elects individuals to salvation. And then those who are not elect to salvation are reprobate, which essentially means that they are elect to hell. In other words, some look at these verses, and we're going to get to them in three or four weeks, and they think God is saying double predestination. In other words, some individuals are predestined, that is, chosen beforehand, and they're chosen for heaven, and others are chosen for hell. Double predestination. I talked about this a few weeks ago. And I like what's called Molinism, and I summarized that a few weeks ago, or middle knowledge. And I, but ultimately, I agree with Bobby Murphy in his sermon on Romans 9 that this chapter, Romans 9, is not really about individuals. It's really more about countries, nations. God has the right to do with nations as he pleases. God elected Israel. Going all the way back to Genesis 12. Going all the way back to Genesis 12. God said, God chose Abraham. And God said, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And, and through the next 2,000 years, because Abraham was around 2,000 BC. For the next 2,000 years, God was watching over Israel. And he had a plan for the Messiah to come through Israel. And there's still a blessing for Israel. And there's still a future plan for Israel. But I think the main point of Romans 9, as I'll be sharing the next several weeks, is God has a right to do with nations as he pleases. Now, God does have a right to do with people as he pleases. And if you don't think that, you probably need to search the scriptures and do business with God because he is God. We don't have a choice in who he is. He's God. There's no one greater you're not greater, I'm not greater, he's God. He's omnipotent, obviously that means all-powerful, he's omniscient, that means all-knowing, he's omnipresent, that means he's present everywhere, including outside of time. And we've got to recognize that, we've got to bow to him, we've got to submit to him, we have to surrender to him. Last fall I met with a Bible teacher who thought that up until Romans 9, Romans has been about individuals, not nations. And therefore, Romans 9 is about individuals. I strongly disagree. All throughout Romans, Paul has been contrasting two groups. He's been contrasting the Jews and the Gentiles. Or actually, as Dr. Adelnik said on Moody Radio a few weeks ago, it's more appropriate to call them Jewish, not Jews. Jewish. In Romans chapter 1, 
Paul talked about Gentiles and, and the Gentiles need a savior. In Romans chapter 2, he talked about the Jewish people and the Jewish people need a savior too. In Romans 3, he, he talked about the Jewish people and then Gentiles with Jewish people in verses 23 and 31 again. He's been contrasting those two groups. In Romans 4, he gave the example of justification from the Old Testament. In Romans 5, he gave the example of sin nature from the Old Testament and a fix through Jesus. He gave the example of Adam to Moses and then Jesus. He gave the example of sin reigning in death and grace and righteousness in Jesus in Romans 5.21. In Romans chapter 6, he talked about believers, the corporate group of believers, dead to sin, alive to God. In Romans chapter 7... He talked about both believers and unbelievers. We, we, we must be dead to sin. In Romans chapter 7, he said, we don't need more law. Who will save us? Wretched man that I am, only Jesus. And then obviously in Romans 8, he talked about the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, victory in Christ. As we can see, Romans chapters 1 through 5 are strong contrast between the Gentiles and the Jewish people and between the law and grace. Then Romans chapter 6 through 8 are more about believers. These are corporate references. They're not indi- we are a very individualistic society. We don't think in community language. We don't think in corporate terms. They did not understand the individualism that we have today. These are corporate references. Therefore, I think the case is strong that we are dealing with Scripture talking about corporate groups. In this case, God can do what he wants with nations. And that is not to say, I'm repeating myself here, but it's important. That is not to say that God does not have a right to do what he wants with people. He does. He is God. And we have to bow the knee to God and recognize that. So it's past time we talk about these first five verses. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So Paul here is getting into a subject that is very important to him. And many people have questions about it. Even to this day, they have questions about it. And Paul is answering this right here. What about the Jewish people? Now, now as we get into this, Paul does not say they have a free ticket to heaven. He doesn't say that. If he did, he wouldn't have had to say, I would rather be a curse so they can go to heaven. No. He desperately wanted his people to be saved. But salvation has always been through Jesus. In the Old Testament, salvation was a credit. It was credited to the cross where Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. In the Old Testament, they may not have known exactly how it was going to work out, but they had all these promises of a Messiah. And now, today's day and age, our sins are debited to the cross. But it's all about faith and trust in Jesus. Paul is Jewish. So here he's asking a question. What about the Jewish people? The Savior came through the Jewish line. Do they get a free ticket to heaven? What about the Jewish people who reject Jesus? And Paul has been writing in Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3 and other places that they need a Savior as well. Look at Romans 3.23. Look at Romans 6.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone needs a Savior. And Paul says the Holy Spirit is his witness. And the genre of these verses is a lament. This is a lament. A lament for his people. Look at verse 2. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I'm going to to read verses 1 and 2 together now. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Notice the modifiers. 
Paul doesn't just have sorrow. He has great sorrow. And what, what, what modifies his anguish? Unceasing anguish in his heart. He has great sorrow, unceasing anguish. Think about that word. Paul has anguish in his heart that does not cease. And what's his anguish about? It's about his people group being saved. He wants Israel to be saved. Look at verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They're his biological kinsmen. They're his ethnic, his ethnic group. And he says he could wish that he himself was accursed, sent to hell for the sake of his people. Paul is sorrow for his people. He wishes that he could be accursed and cut off from Christ. Now, hold on a minute. Paul is making a strong statement there. He wishes that he could go to hell. Don't miss that. He wishes that, they could, that he could go to hell so they could be saved. Now, he knows that this is impossible. He's likely using a little bit of hyperbole to drive home his emotions. He really cares about his Jewish people. How much do you care that your family and friends are saved? How much do I care? He's saying right here, he wishes he could be accursed. He wishes he could go to hell for them. He knows that that's impossible, but that's how desperately he wants them to be saved. And many times we can't even open our mouth to our family and friends. Now, don't get me wrong. I need to say here, don't be a nag. Don't be pushy. But many times we need to pray, God, give me an opportunity to talk to my children, my grandchildren about Christ. And then we need to look for that opportunity. Paul says accursed. That's a Greek word. John MacArthur shares this, which means it's a Greek anathema, which means to devote to destruction in eternal hell. Although Paul understood the exchange he was suggesting was impossible, it was still in, sincere, in, in the sincere expression of his deep love for his fellow Jews. He would be accursed if it would save them, but as one source shares, but he knows that this would achieve nothing, for none but Christ could be any person's substitute to bear God's wrath. Do you realize you can't substitute yourself to bear God's wrath? Only Jesus did that. He became the substitutionary atonement on the cross. Only he can be a person's substitute. Moses voiced a similar self-sacrificing wish for the Israelite salvation in Exodus 32, 30 through 35. He wanted to substitute himself for the people of Israel as well. This is Paul's heart for his people group. It's his heart for Israel. And I have to emphasize this one more time. What's our heart for our family, for our friends, for our loved ones, for our neighbors, for our coworkers? Remember that movie Sixth Sense? I saw it once. I'll never see it again. I just didn't, didn't like it. I'm not saying you're evil if you watch it. But I usually like M. Night Shyamalan because he has a good twist in the end. That, that, I just don't like thoughts about seeing dead people. But there was a little boy who said repeatedly in it, I see dead people. Okay? Do you realize we see dead people too? Without Christ, people are lost. They're dead. They're going to eternal destruction. We see dead people too. And some of them are our own family members and friends. And we need to be praying for them daily. Don't nag them and be a pest because you might turn them off to Christ, drive them further away. 
but do pray for them and nag God. I'm serious about that. Go home and read Luke 18 about the persistent widow who kept praying to this unrighteous judge. And Jesus used that as an example. Jesus told us to be persistent in our prayer. And I believe that sometimes we tell ourselves lies. We believe what we want to believe. So we think people who are, are saved when they're not persevering in the faith. They're far from God. Now, I can't condemn people. Only Jesus knows somebody's real eternal state. But Jesus did say we have to have fruit. We have to have fruit. And if you're not seeing fruit, you can get on your knees and say, Lord, I hope they're saved, but they're not living yet. Please turn them back. Please, Lord, give me an opportunity to talk about the gospel with them. Pray and fast and pray more and pray more. Nobody comes to Christ except by the prayers of others. I'm sure that many people here might be Christians because of the prayers of Evelyn Queen. Because every time I talk to her, she's about prayers for people's salvation. Or it might be the prayers of your mother, your grandmother, or many, many others. We need to be praying for the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives. And the first thing that we need to recognize is the importance of perseverance. And just to belabor the point, drive it home a little bit more. There's a theological topic about whether somebody can lose their salvation, whether somebody can walk away from God. And I'm not going to address that right now. I have before I can again. But there's a lot of people who believe that you can lose your salvation, but they don't really care when people aren't living for Christ. They don't live that way. First of all, I said I'm not going to address it. I'm going to say one thing. You did nothing to earn your salvation, so you can do nothing to lose it. But we are called to persevere in the faith. Go through Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and look how many times in the letters to the churches Jesus says, persevere, 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 persevere. We're called to persevere following Jesus, be committed to him. In John 15, look at the startling verses out there about the branches that are cast in the fire. We got to live for Jesus. As we hear Paul's heart for the Jewish people right here. Reflect on your own life and those around you and and pray that you're living for Jesus. And then if, if you don't care that others are saved, you're probably not saved as well. Because how can you taste the eternal life and the fullness of life that Jesus offers and hold it to yourself and not share it? Paul says... Well, first, in the book of Acts, during Paul's missionary journeys, his pattern was to go to the Jewish people first. And then when they rejected him, he went to the Gentiles. If you look at Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14, he always went to the Jewish people first. And then when his people rejected him, he would shake the dust off his feet, and then he went to the Gentiles and preached the gospel. Paul, right here, he calls them my kinsmen according to the flesh. And this means that the Jews are his family in a genetic, biological way. And Paul's going to expand on this in the next few verses. There's a story told. About a mother who came to Napoleon on behalf of her son. Her son was about to be executed. The mother asked the ruler to issue a pardon. But Napoleon pointed out that it was the man's second offense. And justice demanded death. And the mother said, I don't ask for justice. I plead for mercy. The emperor objected. He said, but your son doesn't. Deserve mercy. Sir, the mother replied, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Her son was granted the pardon. Anytime God saves us, it's God's grace. Anytime God saves us, it's his mercy. In his mercy, he holds back what we deserve. We all deserve hell. We all deserve judgment. 
Let's look at God's gifts to Israel in verses 4 through 5. These next few verses talk about who the Israelites are. Look at it. Verses 4 and 5. Paul says, They are Israelites. And and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul is about to give nine spiritual advantages of Israel. Don't miss these. Nine spiritual advantages of Israel. They are a special nation, he shares in verse 4. They have been adopted in verses 4 and 5. They have, been, they have had God's glory revealed to them in verse 4c. They have been given the covenants in verse 4d. They have been given the law in verse 4e. They have the privilege of worshiping him in, in verse 4f. Number seven, they have the messianic promise in verse 4g. They have a godly ancestry in verse 5a. They are the people from which Christ came in verse 5b. Those are nine spiritual advantages of, of Israel. And some of these are still to come. They're present and future, present, past, and future. And and we could spend a lot of time on these nine, but I want to make a a, a few brief comments. Paul says they are a special nation. God chose Israel in Genesis 12 through Abraham. And God reaffirmed the covenant with him. And then Moses, God reaffirmed the covenant with Moses. And then God reaffirmed the covenant with, with David. The Messiah, Jesus, came through the line of Abraham, and that is from Israel. And you can see some passages about that. Genesis 12, Genesis 17, Exodus chapters 19 through 24, Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29, 2 Samuel 7, and many, many other passages about God choosing Israel. They have been adopted by God. This goes back to Genesis 12, and it's reaffirmed by the prophets. In Exodus 4.22, God calls Israel his firstborn son. Isn't that cool? God calls Israel his firstborn son. They have had God's glory revealed to them. Think about all the miracles in the Old Testament. Think of the Red Sea splitting in Exodus 14, verses 13 and following. Think of the pillar of fire guarding them and the cloud by day leading them, Exodus 13, 21. Think of the manna in the wilderness, Exodus 16. Think of the miracles with the prophets. One of my favorites is 1 uh, Kings 18, 22 through 40, where Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal. It's powerful. The Israelites have seen God's glory revealed to them. They have been given the covenants. They've been given the law, as mentioned in Exodus 20. They have the privilege of worshiping him. It is a privilege to worship God. They have the messianic promises. All these messianic promises in the Old Testament, over 300, even over 400 of them, given to Israel. They have godly ancestry, and they are the people from which Christ came. The Messiah Jesus came through the Israelites. See Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, and the genealogy of Jesus. See also Luke 3, 23-38. As an important note, some of 
those promises are future as well. One source shares some of the privileges in verses 4 and 5 have future components as well as past ones. For example, Israel's adoption as sons is grounded in God's selection of Israel as the recipient of his covenant blessing. But Israel's sonship also has a glorious future component for Jewish believers. There's still more to come. God is not done with Israel. And I think I see that in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. God still has a future and a purpose for Israel. Verse 5 indicates that Christ shares the divine nature. And Christ was incarnate in absolute sovereign, but it's also worthy of eternal acclamation. It says, blessed forever. Paul's anguish stands from his awareness that the Jewish people were not yet experiencing everything God promised them, including their own exalted Messiah. There are still promises to come, and I think that that is alluded to here. In the beginning of Romans 9, Paul shares his passion for Israel. Paul shares that it is a privilege to be an Israelite. Most of all, the Messiah, Jesus, came through Israel. And saves Jewish people and Gentiles, all who believe. Paul wants his Jewish brothers and sisters to be saved. Notice how Paul ends this in verse 5. He says, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In two weeks, we're going to pick up on verse 6. But look at the first part of verse 6 right now. In verse 6, Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And Paul is going to go on to share, the word of God has not failed. Just because the Israelites were rejecting Christ at that time, though not all, many were saved, but just because many were rejecting Christ, he's saying the gospel has not failed. The word of God has not failed. God's promises are still valid. And we're going to pick up that in a few weeks. God had a plan for Israel to bless the nations. In verses 23 through 26, Paul will write about how God used Israel to bless the nations. Realize that God used Israel to bless all the nations. Think about it. In Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And of course... He had one child, the child of promise, Isaac. He had another one, um, Ishmael, who was not the child of promise. We'll talk more about that in the coming weeks. But eventually, the Israelites had great numbers. But how else did he bless the nations? Gentiles were grafted in. God used ethnic Israel to save the Gentiles through Jesus. Throughout the whole Old Testament, God is watching over Israel for a few purposes. One of them was that Jesus would come through Israel and save you and me. God wants all to be saved. He wants all to be saved. Applications. Let's make some applications. Can we speak with the Holy Spirit as our witness that we are being honest? Did you notice that in verse 1? He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. The Holy Spirit is my witness. Is the Holy Spirit our witness? We must be about the truth. We must not share anything that is not true. We must check our motivations for what we share as well. We must not forward an email that is not true. We must check our motivations, we must not forward an email that we cannot verify is true. We must not share a social media post that we cannot verify is true. We must not share a news article that is not true. We must care about the truth and falsehood must bother us. Do we have a passion for our ethnic group to be saved? That's an application that I've been driving home this whole sermon. Do we recognize all of the spiritual benefits of Israel? 
We must recognize God's place for Israel. Don't forget that. We must praise God for Israel. And we must pray for the Jewish people to be saved. There's ministries, chosen people's, chosen people's ministry is one that you can hear about on Moody Radio. I just ordered a, a book from them on Isaiah 53. Uh, there are ministries to help reach the Israelites for Christ, and that's very, very important. We must accept the gospel and share the gospel. So my theme today has been that we see Paul's passion that his people would be saved. And we see all of the spiritual benefits the Israelites were blessed with. And just to say that application one more time, do you care about the gospel? Do you care about your loved ones knowing Christ? The worst sin is not to hate a fellow creature, but to be indifferent toward him. That's the essence of humanity. Are we indifferent? I think too many of us are indifferent to the gospel. Maybe not in our own life, but in the others around us. Do you know that America is now the number one mission field for many countries? Do you know that the millennial generation, which I heard somebody on Renewing Your Mind say is, are those born after 1982, which I'm grateful for because then I'm not a millennial. <laughs> if it's 80 or 81, then I'm a senior millennial. Of the millennials, they're saying 15% are Christians. And I've heard as low as 7% and it's going to 4%. America, our own ethnic group, our own people are ripe for harvest. And certainly the first thing we need to do is live for Jesus. And the second thing we need to do is pray. The second thing we need to do is not go and share the gospel. No. The second thing is to pray. And pray the Holy Spirit would show you where is the ripe fruit. <laughs> Don't pick the green fruit. They're not ready for the gospel. Where is the ripe fruit? Where is God going to give us the conversation about the gospel? Let's pray about that right now. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Israel. And Lord God, I thank you for all these benefits that Paul points out for Israel right here. And really, and how you truly have used Israel to bless the nations. And to bless me, really. As through your chosen people, through Israel, through Abram and Isaac and Jacob, who was renamed Israel. You used that line to bring the Savior into the world. And here we are. Thousands of miles away from Israel, worshiping you. And we thank you, Lord God. And Lord, I'm sure that some here are thinking, he's challenged me to share the gospel, but some may be thinking they don't even know the gospel. But Lord God, we know that John 6.44 and 6.65 and other passages show, we can only be saved by the Holy Spirit convicting us. So I pray, Lord, the Holy Spirit would be convicting sinners to be saved or others here to repent and turn our lives to you. Maybe some have strayed from you. They're sitting here thinking I need, they need to repent. May today be the day of repentance. Maybe some have been believers in you, but they're not living for you. May today be the day to say, I'm going to trust in you. 
Lord God, give us opportunities to share the gospel with our friends, neighbors, and loved ones. Here the Apostle Paul we see willing to be anathema, accursed, to pretty much suffer hell for the sake of his kinsmen. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would put that same passion on our hearts that we desperately want our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, our great-nieces, nephews, our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends to be saved. Oh, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, convict us. And Lord God, for today, if there's anyone who is convicted and they need to repent or they need to turn to you for the first time, may today be the day to say, Lord Jesus, I confess I've sinned and I've missed your perfect standard. I believe in you, Jesus, you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. I'm trusting in you and I'm committing to you. Please come into my life and help me to live for you. Lord, we need your help. We all need the Holy Spirit's help to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. I share it again. If anything has sparked questions in your mind, I love talking about questions. So if anything has caused a misunderstanding or maybe you're here and here, you have doubts about Christianity, talk to me. I'd love to help you search out those doubts and find answers. The altars are always open. If the Holy Spirit has laid anything on your heart and you want to come forward and pray, come on forward. I'm going to invite the praise team up now.